Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. The trial, which concluded yesterday for two members of uh, Dalton McGinty's former senior staff, David Livingston, the chief of staff for McGinty, and Laura Miller, the former deputy chief of staff. They were both on trial. Mr. Livingston was found guilty. Ms. Miller was found not guilty. And uh, at, the, uh, at the trial yesterday, at the, at the um, declaration of, of guilt, that's a clumsy way of saying it, was my uh, chorus radio colleague, Alex Pearson, the, uh, the host of On Point on the Chorus Radio Network. That's pretty clumsy talking, eh? Well, that's just a bit more fancy. Fancy? Well, thank though. you so much. Fancy. Thank you. It's all formal. I, I feel better now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Alex, I talked to people over the last couple of days who couldn't even remember what the gas plant situation was really all about. They remembered $1.1 billion, but not the issue. So can you just remind well, us, please? you can remind them by looking at their hydro bill. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that, that is a big uh, <laughs> yeah. reason why prices have gone up. So what, what was the reason? Remind us, please, what the reason was that Livingston and Miller were facing charges in the first place. Yeah. So we have to go back six years to 2011 when uh, Dalt McGinty was fighting for his political life. And there were two seats in Mississauga and Oakville that were liberal-friendly seats. And they were under threat because there were two gas plants being built, natural gas plants being built, and they were very unpopular. And so what do you do when you're fighting for your political life in an election? Oh, yeah, you cancel those plants when they've already got signed documents and signed contracts. And, and then you just cancel them. Um, you know, collateral damage and expenses be damned. But so they canceled those gas plants in that election, and Dalton McGinty ended up winning those seats and got a minority government. And it was only because of that minority government that the opposition... Alex? Uh, and the information we want to know about the costs were revealed. And so they did what is called a freedom of information request, and that would protect any documents in the ministry, in the whole, um, you know, uh, liberal government would have to be preserved and protected because they wanted those documents because they were having uh, these legislative committee hearings on this matter. It was a very, very serious matter because as the, the Auditor General pointed out, it wasn't the $230 million that, um, that they claimed it cost to cancel them. It, it went up to $1.1 billion. But upon that, and what is not really reported, but now what I report is, after the fact, you had to move those plants to the new uh, location and build them, which is an additional amount of money. So it's actually closer to about $2 billion. So the, the accused, Laura Miller and David Livingston, were facing a number of charges, including obstruct justice, mischief, um, and, and that is because they were accused of destroying these documents that are owned by us, the taxpayer, that would have, you know, explained why they did it, what the costs were, etc. But, of course, we don't know what happened because those emails were destroyed. So the trial concluded yesterday with a ruling of guilt for David Livingston, uh, and M Laura Miller was acquitted. So what was it that convicted Livingston? Well, um, it, you know, the judge, thank God, it was Justice Lipson, who has, uh, is far more capable than the Crown, who really are the three stooges, because they, they just could not do the job properly. So they're lucky they got even one conviction, because they handled the case so badly. 
Um, but essentially, uh, the judge said in very terse language uh, that he was dishonest, sophisticated, um, and, and was guilty, essentially, of uh, seeking and getting administrative approval and bringing someone off the street to wipe hard drives in the premier's office. That's a simple version of it. So, uh, you know, it, it garners, it's a cover-up. Right, and that, and that at some point came off the street was Miller's husband. Yeah. Boyfriend. Boy, and boyfriend, so, yeah. Um, yeah. So, look, this the story stinks seven ways to Sunday, but essentially what happened was David Livingston went to the upper echelons of the civil service and said, I need to get administrative powers to... Um, um, get rid of personal stuff on our email, on our, on our computers in the premier's office. And they all looked at him and said, well, you, you can't, you can't just do that. We have a, a system in place. And so he started poking around and asking, and it turns out that he wanted to get the administrative powers so that this Peter Feist, the boyfriend of Laura Miller could come in and wipe the hard drives. Now to think, uh, Roy, of a person coming off the street and going into the premier's office and wiping drives is so baffle gabbing to me. And to should be to everyone because you just can't do that. You can't do that. But nonetheless, they got these administrative powers. Laura Miller uh, brought in her her boyfriend, who was paid ten thousand dollars to do the job, and twenty computers were wiped. But it turns out um, they were trying to get administrative powers for many, many more computers to destroy them all. And I'll point out that during this whole period of time, the Energy Minister Chris Bentley. Um, who would have been part of these conversations, you know, the, the opposition went to him and said, well, where are all the emails? Like, where are all the documents regarding the gas plan? He said, well, I don't have any. There are none. So I don't know how many documents were destroyed or emails were destroyed, but the people of Ontario are the real losers here because we will never know the true cost of all of this or who did what. But I can tell you that um, the people of this province were really screwed over with this thing. Period. And Dalton McGinty, who is nowhere to be seen today, certainly doesn't have to answer to any of these questions. But it really should show people of this province how far this political party is willing to go to cling on to power. And if it means no long-term care, no mental health care spending, or help for autism families, or your hydro bill, they don't care. They will do what they have to to win. And that's, uh, I mean, that's their thinking uh, now, today, and heading into into June. We see that with the, with the current premier. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. What else might be coming from Queen's Park, from the premier's office, and from the Liberal Party, the Liberal government? You know, they haven't fired all their odd bullets, strange bullets. There's more to come, but we know that there's a real ethics issue here and there's a conviction of the former chief of staff of the premier when Dalton McGinty occupied the premier's office. Talking with Alex Pearson, my uh, colleague on Chorus Radio, the host of On Point. Alex, uh, what is it? Uh, what does Livingston face now? What What are the possible penalties? Um, I wouldn't think much. Uh, certainly not jail time. It's a It's a crime with a computer. Um, so I don't suspect he'll get a lot and maybe a fine, but. What it does is give the opposition an awful lot of ammunition because now they can officially use words like corruption or scandal or look what they've done. Um, and you can't really deny it because what I think is really important for people to understand and what, you know, the premier already tweeted out as well, you know, this was a different time, different government. That is a load of horse pucky. She was in the upper echelons of this government. She was a pretty big player in this party, even at that time. And there's two important things to remember. 
Kathleen Wynne was the co-chair of the election campaign of that time, 2011. She would have been in that kind of inner circle with the decision-making. So she ought to have known, unless she was living under a rock, uh, the decisions that were being made. Further to that, and I think uh, more damaging, is that on July 29th, there are uh, signed cabinet documents um, where she signed uh, off on payments to this Oakville gas plant, the cancelled gas plant, and that cost the Ontario taxpayers $800 million, according to the Auditor General. So for her to say, hey, not me, didn't do it, can't, can't look at me, different time, is absolute nonsense. And don't forget, we still have ongoing investigations with this government, including Orange, which is, uh, I think it's in its fifth year now, and, and for whatever reason, doesn't ever seem to go anywhere. So I think, you know, politically, it's not a great thing for the premier to be going into an election five months from now with this ruling. I mean, I, I'm sure yesterday was not a great day for her. But I really think at this point, Roy, people need to take a good, hard look and say, is this what we expect in this country? Is this what we're willing to put up with? Because for me, this election is about two things. Turning Ontario in a different direction and actually getting back on track, becoming more business friendly, and actually giving people a chance to survive instead of nickel and diming them to death. The other thing, and I think it's really important, is sending a message that we as Ontarians are not going to put up with this crap because we don't live in Venezuela. We expect more from our politicians, and it's a bit about principles. And so people will say, well, I don't like Patrick Brown. I don't know who he is. Fine. Vote for Andrea Horvath. Vote for Green. Vote for the dog that's walking up your street. I don't care. But no one should reward a government that has been, I think, so disrespectful to the taxpayers of this province and really, I think, driven the cost of living up so much that, you know, that's why they need the increase in minimum wage. Because people cannot afford this government due to all the waste. Mm -hmm. And the Auditor General of Ontario has pointed out to the people of the province that because of the policies of the uh, of the wind government and the fact that they set aside the, the advice from their own consultants on yep. the hydrophile, we yep. are now over $130 billion in, in, yep. in debt that we shouldn't be in debt for. Well, yeah, it, the, the debt is going up to $350 billion. It's and that's terrifying. Because, it is terrifying because my child is going to be stuck with yep. that. And what that means for the children of our future is they won't have services for, let's say, hospital. They'll probably have to pay fees, or they're not going to have mm -hmm. services for, um, you know, all the things that we actually need, that we pay for, for education. So we're really just robbing Peter to pay Paul. So it's all just a shell game, and everyone talks about, well, the hydro, they gave us relief. Well, first of all, they drove that hydro rate up, and B, um, they artificially lowered it short-term to get through the election because right. documents are out there that show right after the election the price goes back up. So I think people need to really wake up and say, is this what we, we accept in Canadian politics now? Is this how lo low the bar is set for us and this is how we're going to proceed? Yeah, the Auditor General also pointed out that uh, just the way they, they handle the policy, their own policy, they're made up of, from thin air policy is going to cost yeah. on hydro, is yeah. going to cost the taxpayers of the province an additional $4 billion. So it's billions yeah. after billions after billions. And then along comes Kathleen Wynne. And what's she interested in? Going after franchisees of uh, Tim yeah. Hortons. Yeah, look, that, that hydro uh, subsidy, make no bones about it, it is a loan over a very long period of time that could go upwards to $93 billion. Uh, just to give you an artificial low bill for a year now. Right. So it's a very dangerous policy. And getting to your point on the minimum wage, something that she did not campaign on, 
something she signed legislation on three years ago to say that they would not raise it past the rate of inflation. So businesses in Ontario were completely blindsided yep. by this raise that they were not prepared to, to forecast. And Alex, I, so, I, have to, yeah. I have to stop there yeah. because we're going to break... And uh, then we'll be talking to the uh, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business about where there may be a business-friendly climate in this country. Yep, absolutely. Thanks, Alex. Business in this province. Cheers, Roy. Great talking to you always. Bye-bye. She's terrific. She really is one of the really talented people in our industry in this country, Alex Pearson. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. We've been talking a fair bit over the last couple of weekends about the issue of small business in this country, and specifically it was pointed to the province of Ontario where the minimum wage reached $14 and there was the fallout, as you've heard, uh, particularly from uh, some Tim Hortons franchisees, and that's where the focus has been, although other small businesses have reacted negatively to the Liberal government's increase in the small, uh, in the minimum wage reality because the, f- the factor... The expense factor is huge for them. It's huge because they're already paying massively because of the uh, regulations, because of hydro cost increases. It's not an easy climate. It's not a friendly climate for small business, and small business are the number one employers in Canada. That's not stressed nearly frequently enough. Small to medium-sized businesses hire more Canadians than any other sector of employers. They should never be on the receiving end of bad news from government. They should never be on the receiving end of overregulation. They should never be on the receiving end of negative um, tax realities. They should never, ever, ever be anything other than appreciated for what they bring to the table. And that, my friends, is economic strength and jobs. So I went over a lot of emails over the last couple of weeks. I checked Twitter. But primarily, the the, the more specific issues and challenges came in emails where people have more than 280 characters to explain themselves. And what I saw was a consistent theme and a consistent message. The theme was, we've had enough, and the message was, we may not continue. And I don't for a moment believe that that's just for show because no one required, no one asked these business owners to, to write to me, nobody. They have just had enough. They've heard the conversations on the air and they wrote to me from British Columbia to Ontario and further points east, even though we don't broadcast east of, of Toronto. I hear from people in, in Quebec and even from Atlantic Canada who listen online. And there's a consistent theme across the country. So I was wondering whether there is, in fact, in Canada, a jurisdiction where opening a small business will be met with friendly business environment from government and support from the government and an appreciation for what these men and women who are the entrepreneurs who take sometimes quite often their life savings and put it all in play for their dream, which results in employment and pushes the Canadian economy forward. There are businesses that fail, there are businesses that succeed, but it is the ones, it is the people who decide to give it a try, who decide to put everything on the line 
They're the people who need to be recognized and not pushed around. Dan Kelly is the president, the CEO, and the chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent small and medium-sized businesses across this country. We've talked to Dan a lot over the last couple of weekends. Dan, thank you for coming back. And is there a jurisdiction in this country that deserves mention because of their business-friendly, small business-friendly attitude? I don't know that there's one jurisdiction that has uh, has got it all right. There are certainly some provinces that are working hard to try to make it a more palatable place to uh, to open and to grow a small business. Uh, others that seem to be doing everything in their power to the opposite way to make it more challenging and and as uh, as you uh, implied, slagging small business owners along the way. But a few of them have been have been moving forward in a, in a positive way. I'd, I'd single out uh, right now. Uh, the government of Manitoba has done a lot of recent things to try to uh, address uh, some of the concerns of small business. They've got some really neat stuff happening on regulatory reform to try to get rid of some of the unnecessary rules and red tape that frustrate business owners a great deal. The government of Saskatchewan has also done, uh, over the last uh, decade or so, quite a few positive things uh, for small and medium-sized firms. There's been a bit of a slippage in the last uh, year or so, but I would say overall they've been uh, fairly responsive. I'd say the uh, the in, in Atlantic Canada, it actually has been Nova Scotia that has been leading the way. Uh, the Liberal government there uh, is uh, is headed by a small business owner. The, the Premier in, in Nova Scotia ran a small business before, and I think that that really does give a politician a better grounding in the realities of, uh, of what it takes to run a small firm. So there's been several developments in Nova Scotia that I can point at, uh, including on the regulatory front, including on the tax side, uh, that have made the lives of business owners a little bit easier. And even the B.C. government, under under the new NDP government, I have to say, we had some apprehensions uh, based on, on elements of their platform so far. But there have been, I'd say, uh, you know, they've been holding fire on, on, on a few of those things, even on the minimum wage front, have certainly taken, I think, a more cautious and realistic approach than, than their counterparts in Alberta and in, uh, and in Ontario. So some are trying. Yeah, and, and you know, it, this isn't a partisan thing either. I mean, the, the NDP in Manitoba, a couple of premiers ago, not the most recent one, but uh, when Gary Dewar was the head of uh, the Manitoba NDP, Manitoba was the, was the first province in the country that uh, actually l- reduced the small business corporate tax rate down to 0%. And that surprised a lot of people that an NDP government would focus on small firms the way that they did. But, but that happened. Dan, the sense that I have, again, looking at emails... And putting them all together and coming up with a, with a with a with a combined message or a message that combines the uh, what I'm reading in the emails is is simply this: we're being overregulated to death. We cannot and must not be stopped in what we're doing because we're trying to succeed. And this is the message that is repeated again and again. So I ask this question: without renewal of small business without new blood, without new enthusiasm, without new entrepreneurs, what happens to the economy of this country? You know, it's an, it's an excellent question, something we've been focused on. There are a lot of business owners who are in their 50s, 60s, and beyond. One of my, my, one of my favorite stories is from a, a, a member of ours in, in Saskatchewan who wrote to us to say that he was super excited because Dad, finally, on the farm, had showed him books and, and was starting to pass the reins over uh, to the next generation. Unfortunately, the guy, the successor, 
was 65 himself, and Dad was 85, and just now <laughs> beginning to pass over the business to him. So there's a lot of business owners that have uh, that certainly have been pushing back the retirement date again and again and again. But if we make it harder for them to do that, if we discourage business owners through things like the changes that the federal government has made to small business corporate tax policy, make it more expensive to run a business by increasing minimum wages by 21% as just happened in Ontario, the, the message you send to entrepreneurs is you may want to look, if you really are committed to running a business, you may want to look at greener pastures, and perhaps those pastures are to the south of us. Some provinces have moved the ball forward, but sadly, there has been a lot of slippage this week is uh, what CFIB uh, coined and seems to be picking a momentum is Red Tape Awareness Week. And it's the week that we dedicate to focus on the number two issue that focus, that small businesses are concerned about. And that is the burden, as you said, Roy, of, of red tape and paperwork, which is a real killer for a lot of small firms. All right. So if you're opening a small business anywhere in Canada and you have a counterpart in the United States who's opening a small business, a similar small business, in a similar jurisdiction anywhere in the United States, how will the how will their experience differ? Well, you know, I, I will say that in recent years, uh, Canada was making progress on a lot of fronts, and the U.S. was starting to slip behind, including on the regulatory front. Uh, so, for example, uh, over the last decade, Canada has seen a reduction in regulation and red tape. Some provinces, like the BC government, both in the previous, with the previous Liberals and the current NDP, have focused on keeping the red tape and paperwork burden low. And many U.S. jurisdictions were moving in the opposite direction. But that has all changed. And look, I, I, I am certainly no fan of uh, of the the new president in the United States. I find a lot of what's going on there absolutely gross and make me sick to my stomach. But I can't deny that on the tax front and on the regulatory front, there is a lot of good stuff happening in the U.S. too. And, and it's making, you know, it's whirling out the, the welcome mat uh, for, for entrepreneurs, uh, encouraging businesses to grow and expand, where Canada seems to be moving in, in a bit of the opposite direction. And I'm hoping that our governments get it together and recognize that they can't keep uh, killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. Are you hearing, and we asked you this a couple of weeks ago, now, the, the, the combative attitude of the Premier of Ontario, and the focus nationally has been what's going, been going on in Ontario, but the combative attitude of the Premier of Ontario, particularly towards some franchisees in the, in the, in the Tim Hortons chain, has, has, has caused issues, has caused problems. Uh, are you hearing from, from business owners who may be telling you, I'm either going to close, I'm going to... Uh, downsize, or I'm going to move somewhere else in Canada, or I'm going to close in Canada and open up in the United States? All of the above. Uh, we have been hearing a ton of worry from small business. After all, I was just thinking about this uh, the other day. I tweeted this, I think, just yesterday, Roy. We had, over the entire fall of last year, the federal government referring to many small business owners as tax cheats. And then this, just in January, when the clock ticked towards January 1, the premier of the largest province in Canada started referring to small business owners as bullies. And, you know, so quite apart from the policy environment, what does that say to the business owner when they hear that from their senior most politicians in the country? That, that they're, 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 you know, sacrifices, the sleepless nights, the endless uh, work that they do to, to collect taxes on the part of on the part of society, but that's not appreciated. And in fact, 
they're viewed as with scorn and contempt in some instances by by politicians. And and yes, there has been some attempts to to, to soften that the blows at least at the federal level for the last little bit. But gosh, the you know business owners have have memories of uh, of a pretty tough fall. And certainly the Ontario government has been adding fuel to the fire. Oh, you come full circle on this and you recognize again that it is small and medium-sized businesses. They're the number one employers in Canada. And if you put the fire to them and if you create obstacles for them and if you over-regulate them and if you make it impossible for them to compete uh, financially, because there has to be some return, they're also building, the business owners are also building for their retirement and their future. Uh, if you don't give them an opportunity and all you do is use them as the golden goose, well, that is going to cost jobs right across Canada. There would be economic impact because when the jobs disappear and the small and medium-sized businesses, the impact would be felt everywhere. And then you'd still have the politicians blaming the business owners for closing up. Oh, they didn't have the courage. They, they, uh, you know, they, they, did, they couldn't stand the heat. They couldn't stand the course, and they left. They would blame the small business owners. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Dan, when it comes to regulations that are that just put the screws to small business. I have this visual of the screwdriver just tightening it down, tightening it down, and providing less and less opportunity to breathe and grow and, and have enthusiasm. What, give us an example of, of, a, of a certain type of regulation that might, in, that might be present across Canada that is particularly frustrating and difficult for the small business owner to deal with. Gosh, there is a, a giant and growing list of these uh, red tape nightmares that small business find themselves in. Uh, I, uh, as I was saying before, this is Red Tape Awareness Week, and right now on CFIB's Facebook page, if you search for CFIB on Facebook, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, we have 14 of the worst examples that we've heard over 2018 of red tape and, and paper burden that has faced uh, small business owners. These are examples that our members have raised with them, and we do an award. We will later this week do an award as small business owners and the public can vote on the worst example of red tape for 2018. So we're starting to get votes pouring in uh, from across the country on our Facebook page on this online poll. Uh, but a couple of my favorites, gosh, I, the, the one that just shocked me, I hadn't heard until one of my staff flagged it with me, is uh, from the Department of Labor in Ontario that, uh, sorry, from the Department of Workplace Safety, they the if you have a ladder your construction company and you have a you have ladders obviously as part of your business they have a safety sticker on that ladder if for whatever reason through wear and tear and muddy boots and whatever that safety sticker gets worn off or gets muddy you not you can't just get a new safety sticker in, even if your ladder is perfectly valid you have to replace the ladder <laughs> and so we have business owners who are telling us that they have to buy every few months brand new ladders in their business to replace perfectly good ladders because if the safety inspector happens to show up on the work on the work site they're going to get fined because you can't read the safety sector or it's become a little bit worn in a, on a hot summer day all right so i have How to stop i have that? to I, mean, I have to stop you there uh, but there are more examples on the CFIB Facebook page and it is the uh, red tape week right red tape awareness week red tape awareness week dan thank you so much always appreciate the time you spend with us Anytime. Take care. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I have no time for politicians who accuse, even peripherally, 
their citizens are being racists. I have no time for people who manipulate the issue of racism. All that does, all any of those factors do, the only thing they accomplish is to create divisions or make of divisions that already exist, make them even larger. So we need to talk about a number of issues, and I'm going to do it here. And it all goes back to about, just about over, well, a week and a bit ago, when we heard about an 11-year-old girl in Toronto who said that on the way to school, she was twice attacked by an individual, an Asian man, who with scissors attempted to cut her hijab off. There was a news conference at the school. They got that together very quickly. And uh, the prime minister was heard from almost immediately, as was the premier of Ontario and the mayor of Toronto. Let me play for you a little bit of what Justin Trudeau said. This is a country of openness and welcome uh, and not a country uh, where that is in any way acceptable. And uh, uh, that is something we all need to remind ourselves of uh, today and every day, that we are better than this. We know that. But the prime minister was convinced, is convinced, that there is a cadre, a large cadre, I suspect he's convinced, that there's a large cadre of racists in this country just willing, just waiting to, uh, to somehow create Islamophobia. I still don't know what Islamophobia is, but it's the term that is used again and again. Here's what the conservative leader of Canada, Andrew Scheer, had to say about the incident. This type of thing is just despicable and has no place in Canadian society. I, I certainly hope that the Toronto Police Services uh, are able to track down the person who committed uh, this, this, uh, this violent act. And my thoughts and prayers are, are with the young girl and her family. So I don't know if that was a little less attacking of Canadians than Mr. Trudeau. Uh, you can make up your own mind about that. Let's see, who else do we have here? The uh, Premier of Ontario, Kathleen Wynne, said this is a cowardly act of hatred and it has no place in Ontario. This does not represent who we are. We must stand firm in our support of this young girl who was assaulted simply for wearing a hijab. And the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, said, I'm shocked and appalled to learn a student wearing a hijab was assaulted on the way to school. No child should ever be afraid of walking to school in Toronto because of what they are wearing. None of them waited to find out whether or not the story was accurate, none of them. In how many other cases would a prime minister, a premier, and a mayor of a large city step forward and make definitive statements, really just saying, we know it happened, and here's how we feel about it. I didn't say anything about the incident last weekend on the program, and I was criticized for that by some people. I didn't say anything because I wanted to wait and find out whether there were any issues about whether the story was in fact true. I just had a feeling that for an 11-year-old, it might be a reach. To, uh, I, just, I just had a feeling that there was something just not right about it. Well, now we know. And uh, joining me on the program is uh, Thomas Quiggin. Uh, he's been on the air with us in the past, not so long ago. Tom Quiggin is the uh, Canadian court-certified expert on terrorism and security. 
He's worked with the RCMP, the Canadian Armed Forces, the United Nations, the Bank of Canada. He's the author of Submission, the Danger of Political Islam to Canada, with a warning to America. Tom, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks, Roy. It's uh, good to be here. And uh, you and I corresponded uh, by way of email, and you sent me a list of incidents that have taken place that yes. where Islamophobia was claimed, and I, I want to talk to you about a, a couple of them. Let's start with the first one you sent me about. It was about Yasmin, is it Saweed, who said that three white men attacked her in a New York City subway. What's the story there? Yes, well, this incident was rather famous. Shortly after Donald Trump was uh, elected, this uh, young woman, Yasmin, came forward, said she'd been attacked on a New York subway by three white guys yelling that she was a terrorist and yelling the name of Donald Trump. After this made the headlines and after it became a national news story and was exposed, you know, this horrendous act of Islamophobia, turns out she actually had a curfew problem with her parents. She'd been in a dispute with her father over how she should live and how she should behave. So she made up this story to avoid uh, problems with her parents. And, of course, this is just one of many different incidents where women have claimed to be attacked because they're wearing hijab. When, in fact, you know, nothing actually happened. But it received a lot of immediate attention, did it not? Yes, as soon as you put the word Islamophobia, Donald Trump, and uh, hijab in the same uh, sentence, you know, you get a lot of immediate coverage by the media. All right, so now the the Houston mosque that was the scene of an arson attack on Christmas Day of 2016. Yeah, the Houston mosque is an interesting example where there was a fire inside the mosque, uh, CARE USA, which is the Council on American-Islamic Relations, immediately claimed this was a hate crime, it shows how bad Islamophobia was, etc., etc. When the police investigated and arrested the individual who set the fire, it turns out he was actually a member of the mosque itself, uh, who had a gripe with how the mosque was being run, so he decided to attack it. What's ironic in this case is Care USA has not removed that from their website. They still claim that's a, an incident of Islamophobia and a hate crime, and they never actually mentioned the fact it was one of their own folks that burned the place down. All right. Now, this is particularly interesting, and let me just put this one here. There was the Peterborough mosque burning here in Canada in November of 2015. That mosque suffered a small internal fire. Um, at the time, Prime Minister Trudeau urged Canadians to avoid acts of, quote, hatred and racism. Now, interestingly, a year later, Trudeau goes to the reopening of the mosque and says how saddened he was to see a hate crime like this haven't taken place. The problem, of course, is there is not a single shred of evidence anywhere to suggest that was a hate crime. No public report from the police, not even any good internet rumors about who actually set the fire. So the Prime Minister of the country is accusing Canadians of acts of hatred and racism and says we're intolerant, etc., etc., based on absolutely no facts. And one more I want to talk to you about. There's a, there's a list here, but one more I want to talk to you about. The 18-year-old in Birmingham in the UK who made a police report that she had been violently assaulted for wearing a hijab. There's The, the hijab is, is quite often at the core of, of, uh, of, of claims of, of assault. Yes, there were multiple incidents. This young lady in Birmingham claims that she was violently assaulted because of her hijab, and this happened just shortly after the Paris attacks, which were uh, so brutal. The police actually went through all their CCTV footage and found out that where she claimed she'd been attacked at the time, that in fact nothing had happened. 
Now, interesting, I mean, we've talked about this before. There was a woman in Vienna, Austria, who also claimed she'd been pushed onto the train tracks because she was wearing hijab, etc., etc. Again, police went through the CCTV, and what did they find? Nothing actually happened in the uh, train station. So, yeah, there's a long-established pattern of fake attempts or fake events uh, making it into the public news. So you're a court-certified expert on the issue of terrorism and security. You can, uh, in Canadian federal court and criminal court, you may express your expert view of, of what a situation is all about. So, Tom, what are these issues about? Are these individual uh, issues that should only be seen individually, maybe somebody, as you said, the first person we talked about, a young woman who had problems with her parents because she was staying out late. Or is there something else at play as far as you're concerned? Well, there's a couple of things going on, Roy, uh, the, and you're, you're right to raise this issue. In a few cases, like the New York case issue with Donald Trump, that woman was in trouble with her parents. She needed some sort of an escape uh, to blame somebody else. So, she chose the narrative of being attacked because she's a hijab-wearing woman to try and get her out of trouble. So even though it was a, a fake incident that was made up on the spur of the moment, it feeds that national narrative that, you know, if you're a Muslim woman wearing hijab, you're going to be subjected to violent attacks. Now, what I would say to you and to your, your audience as well is there's a number of problems here. The first one is our, our own prime minister who, following the attack on this 11-year-old girl, or as it turns out, the non-attack, he actually said there's a pattern of increased intolerance, and this pattern is a, is a warning sign. Well, of course, Statistics Canada actually came out and said incidents involving Muslims are going down, not going up. So the Prime Minister is, like, wrong on that issue. The other thing is, of course, that the people in Canada who suffer actual attacks and actual problems are blacks, gays, and Jews. Muslims come in fourth. Here's the, here's the key issue, though. We are left, as a society, with the impression there's a series of violent Islamophobic attacks occurring against women and some men, and this is what we have to work with. Well, the reality is most of the violent attacks which we're exposed to, uh, such as the uh, woman being uh, shoved onto the train tracks in Austria, turn out to be fake. But nonetheless, we're left with this narrative. Now, in the real world, Muslims suffer from bigotry. That happens, the same as it happened to the Irish, the Ukrainians, the Italians, and everyone else. Most of the incidents are actually stuff like, hey, you, you're a terrorist, why don't you go back to your country? It's not actually somebody getting shoved onto the train tracks. But with this narrative that is advanced by Prime Minister Trudeau, by Mr. Goodale, by Ikra Khalid, uh, by Hedy Fry and these sorts of people, we're left with this narrative that Muslims are the victims of violent Islamophobia. Now, ironically, there are Muslims who die because of these kinds of incidents. So Imam Uden of Rochdale, United Kingdom, was murdered on his way home because he was an imam. But interesting enough, the people who murdered him were other Muslims. Yeah, they were members, they were members of ISIS, were they not? They were ISIS yes, they members. Were, they were ISIS-inspired folks who thought this guy wasn't being Muslim enough. All right, Tom, I have one minute here. I want you to tell me, please, from your perspective, what is accomplished by talking about this? What, what are the positives of you and me and then my talking with my listeners, my callers, uh, about this issue? What are the positives that we get out of that? 
Um, I think it's, it's a positive thing to tell people to actually examine the events. It's a positive thing to tell people to take a breath before they make a statement on these kinds of issues. And it's a positive thing to get out there that most of the time, most Muslims walking down the street in Canada are perfectly safe, and most of the so-called violent attacks against them are either fake or all too frequently caused by other Muslims. Tom Quiggin, thank you for the time. Good talking to you again. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Tom. Tom Quiggin, and uh, his book is called, is titled, not called, Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada with a Warning to America. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. The uh, World Health Organization and England's chief medical officer are on the record that the world may be facing the end of healthcare as we know it and a post-antibiotic apocalypse. The war against the antibiotic-resistant superbugs is being fought by, among others, Sean Brady, who's a wild child chemist, as I understand it, and financially backed by Bill and Melinda Gates. I read a fascinating uh, article in Wired magazine, and it's the uh, cover story of the current edition. And uh, the headline is, The Battle Against Global Healthcare." No, 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 let me get the, let me get the, it's the, the title is How Dirt Could Save Humanity from an Infectious Apocalypse. How Dirt Could Save Humanity from an Infectious Apocalypse. And the writer, the reporter, is Peter Andre Smith. He's a reporter based in New York. And Peter, thank you very much for coming on the program. And uh, you headed out of the park with that, uh, with that article. It is absolutely compelling. And it, uh, it lets us know just how much trouble and danger we are in as far as antibiotics and superbugs are concerned. And that there are people out there who may be somewhat eccentric, but who are doing tremendous work to overcome that. And then Bill and Melinda Gates get involved, and the story becomes just one that you can't put down. I, I, I read it three times. Great. Thanks for having me on the show. So how bad, let's start with this, how bad is the situation as far as antibiotics' inability to keep evolving superbugs under control as we have for the last half century plus. We've heard the dire warnings from the English Public Health Boss and the World Health Organization. How bad do you see it as being? Uh, Right now, it's not that bad, and I guess that's part of the problem is that people don't think about it on a daily sort of basis. So it's sort of like this slow-brewing crisis that if we don't do anything, it's going to become a real problem. But it's not like somebody pushes a button and, uh, you know, a bomb is dropped. It's, it's more of like a, a slow brewing crisis that if we don't do anything now is going to be, you know, a real uh, devastating and lethal problem in the future. Now, one of the numbers that I've seen is some 10 million people will die because of this if it's not halted. Some 10 million people will die over the next 12 to 15 years uh, because of the superbugs um, overcoming antibiotics. Yeah, I mean, those are the estimates I've seen. And, um, you know, some people say those are inflated and other people say that those are, you know, that's really what's going to happen if, if we can't find new drugs and, and also take care of better, better care of the ones we do have. Mm-hmm. Now, now, there have been many efforts and there are many efforts underway to find or create drugs capable of subduing these so-called superbugs, which have morphed from bacteria immune to attack. Uh, by antibiotics. And you found uh, chemist Sean Brady, 
who immediately seems unconventional to say the least. So who is Sean Brady and how's he addressing the fight against superbugs? Yeah, Sean Brady, uh, he's a, a, a fairly young chemist who works at the Rockefeller University here in uh, New York City. And uh, he was part of a, a group that um, has pioneered the use of metagenomic sequencing, which is basically looking at DNA in any environmental sample. And he is essentially taking that DNA out of soil and then transferring it to a bacteria that can be grown in the lab and then sort of producing new chemistry from those the, that DNA that he's extracted from uh, soil. So it's sort of, I, I've heard it described as sort of like a sci-fi approach. I mean, traditionally, most of the antibiotics we have uh, came from dirt. So it's not that he's looking in a, a new or exceptional place. It's just that the technology he's using is really represents like a hard break from the past. And it really is a whole, a whole new way of doing things. And I think, uh, you know, so a lot of people thought this was going to be very easy early on to take take DNA out of bugs that live in the soil and sort of like just give them to things that they can grow in the lab. But it, it has proven really difficult. And Sean Brady is like the one or one of the, the few people that has sort of persevered the longest and has worked the hardest to sort of make this a reality. You uh, introduce him to us as somebody who's running around Central Park with a shovel and some some <laughs> plastic bags, and he's putting dirt yeah. in the plastic bags, and, and off he goes to analyze what he's got. <laughs> right. In, in, in truth, uh, Sean Brady doesn't leave his lab all that often, and, um, you know, this was sort of a, a, a way for him to sort of demonstrate, like, just just how sort of conventional the soils are. I mean, you can basically go anywhere. You can look in the flower pot in your office, and, you know, chances are you're going to find some some new chemistry that has not previously been identified. And, and if you know what you're doing, as, as he certainly does, then you can produce all this wonderful chemistry that uh, hopefully will, will treat disease in the future. So the new strains of antibiotics capable of subduing the superbugs are literally under our feet, and now the challenge is transferring them into a syringe or pill form and then you also, of course, have to prove their effectiveness. So we're not talking about something that's going to take just a, a year or two. There's a whole, there's a lengthy multi-year, maybe even longer than a decade, process of from the, the soil to the syringe. Certainly. I mean, I think, I think one, of the, one of the sort of recognitions that everybody's had is that the science isn't sort of the hard part. I mean, the science is difficult. The science is sort of... It's, it's totally possible to find new drugs. Mm -hmm. The hard part is really like showing that they work in, in animal models first and then in humans. And that, that can, as you were saying, it can take up to 10 years and it, and it costs a lot of money to do so. And uh, uh, historically, the, the rates of failure have been uh, rather high. So a lot of pharmaceutical firms aren't sort of interested in taking on the risk of developing a drug that, it has a, a fairly high chance of, of failing before it ever reaches the clinic. So along comes the world's wealthiest man, Bill Gates. <laughs> Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and the, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they enter the picture. How did that happen? Um, so uh, some, somebody that works 
for for the foundation uh, had sort of heard about Sean Brady's work and gave him a call and said, asked him if he could find um, some some drugs that were similar that could treat to, to similar to drugs that already exist that could treat TB. And uh, he he showed that he could um, he had some possibilities like fairly quickly. So uh, they they set up a meeting in New York and uh, with Bill Gates and I guess the two of them hit it off. Um, and, uh, you know, within, within a couple of months, he had, uh, founded a new company, uh, called Lodo Therapeutics and, and they're really just trying to expedite the process of, uh, finding antibiotics and then commercializing them. So Bill Gates wrote the check for the, uh, uh, for the new company. I mean, he, he was among the, the, the funders of the new company. There were other, um, there, there was a. Uh, Accelerator, which is a, a startup incubator uh, that also contributed funding, and some of that that money comes from uh, pharmaceutical firms. So uh, it, it wasn't just Bill Gates's uh, pet project, but um, he was among the the funders uh, uh, of, of this project. Peter, yeah. when when you talk to Sean, when you talk to Sean Brady, and he's not talking scientifically, just talking in terms that I could understand. Uh, what does he say about the danger that we're facing, and what does he say about his project, and what does he say about where we are in the process now that we've uh, the World Health Organization and others, like the head of the uh, the England's chief medical officer, are warning of a post-antibiotic apocalypse. Where does he say we are in the process of going from that danger to being able to again say we have a syringe full of stuff that is going to control? What we were afraid might not be controlled. What does he? How does he describe where we are? Yeah, I think that I think that I mean we've had this. I've had a conversation with Sean Brady about this, and I think that when people talk about antibiotics, it's it's very much a doom and gloom uh, scenario. It seems, uh, you know, very very um, you know potentially devastating to to sort of life as we know it. But I think Sean Brady is sort of an optimist, and he sees the bright side and. Uh, He's obviously persevered, uh, you know, for a very long time doing this thing that I think a lot of people didn't even think was possible. So I think he, he's very much an optimist and he very much believes that uh, it's possible to find new drugs and also possible to, you know, turn them into drugs that you or I could could uh, be using in the next 10 to 20 years. So um, I think one of the one of the interesting things is that, you know, this isn't. Uh, uh, antibiotics doesn't necessarily get people's heart pumping quite the way that uh, new cancer drugs do, or uh, you know there is there is a lot more funding for immunotherapies which can treat cancer. So I think that he 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 wants to find a new way to like inject some enthusiasm into this search, and um, you know he he has opened it up so that um, people can donate soil to his lab and I think he really wants to like excite people from like school children and teachers and, and people that are chemists like him and, and just sort of like get some new enthusiasm into this inject some new enthusiasm into this field yeah well it's necessary and I'm looking at a photograph that's uh, included with your article and it looks like it's it actually looks like it's a, a major chicken coop but what it is is uh, looks like a, a repository for thousands of bags of dirt, and uh, there's yeah. a there's a guy in lab sort of lab clothing walking through it all, and uh, and 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 assessing what he's got. Hold on, Peter. We're going to come back and continue 
with you. I just want to read you a little bit from um, the independent newspaper in the UK. And this was from um, October of last year, 12th of October. England's chief medical officer has warned of a post-antibiotic apocalypse as she issued a call to action urging global leaders to address the growing threat of antibiotic resistance. Professor Dame Sally Davies said that if antibiotics lose their effectiveness, it will spell, quote, the end of modern medicine, end quote. Without the drugs used to fight infections, common medical interventions such as cesarean sections, cancer treatments, and hip replacements would become incredibly risky, she said. We're really facing, if we don't take action now, a dreadful post-antibiotic apocalypse. I don't want to say to my children that I didn't do my best to protect them and their children. And health experts have previously warned that resistance to antimicrobial drugs could cause a bigger threat to mankind than cancer. If no action is taken, it's been estimated that drug-resistant infections will kill 10 million people a year by 2050. 10 million people a year. The World Health Organization is issuing similar uh, concerns. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. The cover story in Wired magazine is how dirt could save humanity from an infectious apocalypse. And uh, Peter Andre Smith is the writer. He's a reporter in New York City. Joining us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I'm going to come back to uh, something about... um, uh, Mr. Brady, Sean Brady, the chemist, Peter, does he have a schedule of any kind? I asked you earlier where he is in the process from dirt to syringe, but does he have a schedule of any kind uh, where what you know that he wants to keep in order to be able to produce an antibiotic that is able to defeat superbugs for a specific uh, bacterial illness like tuberculosis? Yeah, I mean, he has a number of uh, candidate drugs, drugs that seem likely to treat uh, infections, at least in the lab. And I know that he has just begun some uh, animal experiments. One of them uh, treats MRSA, which is a resistant form of uh, staph infections. Um, so, I mean, I, again, I think he's sort of in I, I, one of his... Uh, a colleague sort of described him as, as being impatient. And I think that uh, that's a, a fair characterization. But again, it's really hard to know exactly how long these things are going to take. And, I, and his colleague was basically saying, I don't think impatience is a bad thing. I mean, obviously, we want these things as fast as, as possible. And I know regulatory agencies have sort of uh, allowed for an expedited timeline for approval of these drugs. So I think once once he had, once he's far along with um, one of these candidates, uh, I think we might see these these drugs um, enter the clinic in a, a, a rather uh, quick quick manner. And there's there's no question that they are needed. Just reading from quoting from your from your article, uh, antibiotics used to treat the deadliest pathogens are kept as a last resort when all else fails, such as the how do you pronounce this carbapenems. You can just call them CREs. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Gravely ill patients taking last-line antibiotics can end up dead or they can end up cured. Either way, they're not repeat customers. 
which over a long term adds up to a negligible or negative return on investment, waiting until the market for these life-saving antibiotics reaches critical mass for profitability is a recipe for catastrophe. So this brings us into the, into the uh, issue of making money. Uh, and the objective for pharmaceutical firms is obviously to be profitable, which many of them are. Where does the profit factor fit into this, this whole picture of how dirt could save humanity from an infectious apocalypse? Yeah, I think that the, the, the return on investment is sort of mismatched with the societal and the, the medical value that these drugs have. Um, so I think that a lot of people are trying to think of new incentives. Obviously, people like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are, are trying to support this as a, a philanthropic endeavor. And I think, I think um, more recently, uh, pharmaceutical firms uh, have, you know, started to express interest again in the antibiotic antimicrobial sector. I mean, I think as I was, I was reporting this story, you know, I think people in, in, within the last year and even within the last six months, people have been saying that our pharmaceutical firms are sort of coming around to the idea that um, even if there isn't any money to be made, perhaps there is like some value in 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 finding these drugs and marketing them as as um, you know sort of a philanthropic yeah. um, endeavor. endeavor. Yeah, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, fascinating. It's a great yeah. article, Peter Andre Smith, how dirt could save humanity from an infectious apocalypse in Wired magazine. We'll talk again. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, thanks again for having me. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.